So let's read from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it says, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. I want to just take you, if you like, on a bit of a time warp journey. I want to put you right back into the first century. I want you to imagine as if you are walking down the streets of Capernaum and we're going to the synagogue. And I want you to imagine we're walking down the street and up ahead of us, sitting up on kind of a pier or a raised up section above the rest of the houses, is a large white uh, block building. It's made out of white uh, granite, I believe it is, and there's a set of steps across the front and a big kind of porchway. And we walk around to one side and we climb up those steps and we walk along and there's five great big doorways that are across the front of this synagogue building. And we enter through one of those doorways and make our way inside. And inside this building, there's two great big rooms, pretty much the size of this room where we are now, 20 meters long and about 11 meters wide is one room. It's an open courtyard where they can have gatherings and eatings and so on. And inside, beside that, is another great big room, about 20 meters long as well, and maybe 14, 15 meters wide. And down each side of that big room, there's seven great big pillars, and they're set about five meters out for the wall on each side. There's a big 10 meter space in the middle, and then five meters, and then there's pillars on each side. And against those outside walls, behind the pillars, there's banks and tiers of benches where everybody sits. At the far end of the room, there is a cupboard about maybe as high as a pulpit and about yay wide, and it's got doors on it, and it's a very special cupboard. And in there, the attendant of the synagogue places the scrolls, these carefully handwritten scrolls on lambskin, and they're stored there. And the attendant at the right time would go and get them and bring them out to the center of the room on a raised kind of platform. There's a reading desk, looks just like a pulpit. And he would place the scrolls on the reading desk. And as the service would progress, a person who was qualified, a rabbi or a teacher, would stand up and come forward. And with his head covered, he would read the scrolls. And they would go through the service of prayer and reading and singing. And then somebody would stand up and give an exposition of Scripture. It's kind of like we do church today. Very, very much similar. Well, we make our way inside and we get in there and we find a seat and the Pharisees come in and they've got these beautiful long robes. There's long tassels and they're very austere men and they sort of avoid the common people. And down close to one side, there's a place called the seat of Moses. And those seats that are closest to the cupboard where the scrolls are kept and closest to where the, the beam of uh, pulpit, the reading desk is, those are the honored seats. Those are the special, the best seats. And the Pharisees get in there and they're all kind of vying for the best seats in the house. And they all sit down. Another man comes in and his cloak and robe are somewhat tattered and threadbare and he has one hand kind of pulled back inside the sleeve of his coat and he kind of keeps it hidden because he's very much embarrassed about the hand. And the, the way the text reads is that most likely he was, uh, his hand was crushed in some way. It had become paralyzed and he was unable to use it. And he wanted to keep it hidden. 
And he kind of slipped in amongst all the rest of the people, and he sat down on one of the benches on one side, and all around the room, everybody's talking and whispering. They're waiting for the service to start, but everybody's talking about one man, talking about Jesus, this Jewish carpenter who has been walking all around Galilee and Capernaum. He's been healing the sick. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been doing all kinds of things, and the Pharisees are there too, and they're hoping, they're hoping that he will show up. And all the people are looking, and they're waiting, and they're watching, and and the room is kind of dimly lit. There's a bit of a light in the center, but you can kind of see around the room who's there and who's not. And finally, the room goes immediately quiet, and one man walks in the door. And all the eyes in the room turn towards the door, and there's this man standing there, and of course we know who he is. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He looks around the room and you can see the quietness and everybody's watching. And the Pharisees kind of lean in close and they're staring at him. They're intent. They lean over and kind of whisper to each other as they look across the room. They're all wondering, what will he do? They're convinced. The Pharisees know for sure that Jesus has the power and the authority to deal with this man's hand. But they're all watching to see. They want to find some reason to hate him and to accuse him. And what would happen is if they could bring an accusation against Jesus, they would bring him in and they would lay him down on the floor on that raised platform and the attendant would take a rod or a scourge and he would beat that man. They wanted so badly to get Jesus and to deal with him publicly once and for all. And Jesus stands in the middle of the room, and the man with the withered hand is there. And you can almost see the man with the withered hand. You can see his eyes and his mind begin to thinking. And he's wondering, maybe this will be the day that his hand will be taken care of. Maybe he'll be set free. But he knows the great tension that exists between him and Jesus and the Pharisees. Because he knows the Pharisees want nothing more than to see Jesus heal him on the Sabbath to get an accusation against him. And Jesus finally speaks. And you can almost imagine his words just kind of cutting through the audience and cutting through all the people there. And in the Greek it basically says, rise into the middle. And the man with the withered hand looks up and Jesus' eyes are boring in on his. It's not an angry look. It's a quiet, compassionate look. And he knows that that thing he's trying to hide, he can't hide anymore. He gets up and he moves into the very middle of the room and he stands there. And everybody leans forward and the Pharisees are all, let's see, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And they're all waiting to see what Jesus will say. And they expect him in a moment to make some pronouncement to which they can attach accusation. But Jesus remains absolutely quiet for a time. And then he asks two Very interesting questions. He says in Mark chapter 3 and verse 4, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they keep silent. His questions are two. The first is very clearly regarding the withered hand of the man. The second is very clearly regarding them, the Pharisees. And in Jesus' beautiful, inimical way, he again takes the very point they're trying to make and he spins it back on them and he drives the point home to them. Jesus can read their thoughts and their hearts. He knows that in their hearts they're already plotting, they're already planning to deal with him once and for all. They're planning to destroy him. And so he spins it around and says, Hey, Is it lawful to do good, to save a life, or to kill? And all of a sudden, the Pharisees realize it's more about them than about the man with the withered hand. 
The Pharisees, they themselves know they permitted sick and and injured animals to be rescued on the Sabbath. They know that doing good to another cannot be unlawful on the Sabbath. So if it's permitted for Jesus to do good on the Sabbath, then Jesus healing the hand is not breaking the law. And if Jesus can heal the man, which is to do good without sinning, then he is no ordinary carpenter. He's no ordinary man. He is God with authority to forgive. He is the Lord of Sabbath, Lord over even the Sabbath. And you can see the Pharisees begin to boil with rage. Once again, Jesus in that beautiful way has cornered them. He's put them in a spot where they can no longer escape. And Jesus stands there and the silence gets almost loud, you know. And he begins to slowly look around the room. There's a beautiful irony. They talk about the irony in the Gospel of Mark. The great irony in in Mark's words here is this. The Pharisees have come and they have watched closely, watched minutely. They're looking for some ground to accuse him. But Jesus, as he stands in the middle of the room and slowly works his way around the room and his eyes meet everybody's in the room, Jesus is looking for one person, one that will stand and say, yes, it's permitted. Yes, it's allowed. And you can almost see you know, those awkward moments when the teacher's looking to get someone to do something and the eyes sweep around the room and you quickly look away so they don't catch your eyes. So you, you don't have to get caught to do that thing. And everybody has Jesus' eyes come around the room. They look away. All except, I believe, the Pharisees. I believe their heads went back and they stared back at him with silent contempt. They didn't care about him. They want to get rid of him. And the Bible uses a word to describe Jesus. It doesn't use anywhere else in all the Gospels. It says, Jesus looked at them with anger. Nowhere else does this describe. He describes Jesus doing angry things like turning over tables in the temple and clearing all the animals and driving the people out. That's an angry action. But it's the only time in all the Bible that it describes Jesus with the word anger. And what tripped me up as I kept reading, thinking, maybe we'll just skim over this and move on to the next passage and kind of carry on down the book of Mark's road, is I couldn't get past that word, the anger of Jesus and something else, the hardness of these men's heart. These Pharisees had hardened hearts. They were so hardened that they could not even speak to Jesus. They can't even respond. And you know what? As I stopped and I began to contemplate and meditate on that idea, I realized there's a very clear lesson for us, Casey Bible Church, in 2016, a lesson for us. We must beware the hardened heart that blinds the eyes. These men could not see who he was. They could not recognize him as God, very God. Their hardened hearts had absolutely blinded them. How do you get hardened heart? Well, for those of us who work in the trades, Dev and I know a little bit more about this. Maybe John O2 is when you work as a tradesman and you work with the tools a long time, you begin to develop calluses. And a callus develops as a hard tool rubs against that soft skin and rubs and rubs and works and works. And first you get blisters, then the skin gets harder and harder and harder. And as when we were first dating, I used to go over to Heather's mom's place and we'd pick up plates to put in the, the you know, dinner table for dinner. And she said, oh, grab a hot mat. And Heather would laugh and I'd just pick up the plate with my hands and put it on the table because I had so much callus on my hands it didn't burn my skin anymore. 
That constant rubbing had created a hard skin. And that's exactly how it is when God's truth takes and rubs against the heart of man. And the heart of man refuses to yield. Then the man's heart becomes absolutely hardened against God and against that truth. We need in this day and age, in this church, each one of us to be extremely wary that we do not develop hardened hearts against the word of God, against the truth of God. I want you to consider some hardened hearts in Scripture. The famous of call, you'll, of course, you'll remember, is Pharaoh in the Old Testament. And again and again, the word of God comes to him, let my people go. And again and again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He will not listen to the truth of God. He refuses to obey. And finally, God says, I've had enough. And he turns and he hardens Pharaoh's heart all the way. His heart was hardened because he refused to listen to the word of God. The Israelites themselves... There's a warning in Psalm 95 that says that listening to God and heeding his word prevents a hardened heart. Failure to heed God's word is to harden our hearts against it. So as we go back, and I know we've been through these chapters before, but I want to trace again the actions of the Pharisee very briefly. I want you to see how their hearts were hardened to Jesus and his words. This morning, beware. Beware the refusal to heed the the word of God that hardens a heart and blinds the eyes. First, we remember that the Pharisees heard Jesus' words. They heard his teaching in 2 and verse 2 as he taught all the people. They heard his words of forgiveness to the paralyzed man, but they were critical of Jesus' forgiving sin. They heard his claim to be God with authority to forgive. They saw the proof of it. They saw the paralyzed man stand up and pick up his mat and walk out and go home. But they did not heed the words of Jesus. They failed to respond in belief. Their hearts were unchanged. They are still questioning. They're hardening their hearts. Their hardening hearts are blinded to see who Jesus is as God with authority to forgive sin. Secondly, the Pharisees saw and they questioned Jesus in 2 and verse 16. They heard his words. He had come to call the sinners to repentance, but they refused to listen to his words. They were critical of his association with people who they judged to be sinners. They wouldn't associate them because they thought they were so much better. And how dare Jesus associate with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost see the sneer in their face as they say it. They were critical of him. These Pharisees failed to realize that those sinners had left everything, left their sinful life behind to follow Jesus. Their hardening hearts were blinding them to the work of God in those men's lives. Their hardened hearts were blinding them to the fellowship with God that his followers were enjoying. Their hardening hearts are blinded to see who Jesus is. He is the friend of sinners. Thirdly, the Pharisees questioned Jesus again in verses 18 to 20. They heard about the disciples' failure to fast. They were critical of others that did not practice the same religious legalism. They heard Jesus' explanation. They heard Jesus describing in a parable the new life, new wine, incompatible with old wineskins, new patch, incompatible with old garment, but new wine requiring a new wineskin. Meaning what? Meaning the new life in Christ requires a brand new heart, something made completely fresh and filled with the Spirit of God. But again, they refuse to listen. They're hardening their hearts again. And because they've hardened their hearts, they're blinded again to see that Jesus is the bridegroom come to bring salvation to his people. 
Again, the Pharisees questioned Jesus. They saw the disciples gathering up grain on the Sabbath and taking it and rubbing it in their hands and blowing away the chaff and eating handfuls of that delicious grain just to feed themselves. And again, they're critical of others that do not practice their religious legalism. They're hardening their hearts again and they're blind to see who Jesus is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And now the Pharisees stand in their room on the seats and they're watching Jesus. They're watching him so closely. In our text, inside the scene before us, they're determined to criticize his healing on the Sabbath. Their sole purpose is to find grounds to accuse him. Their hearts are so hard that they're blind to the needs of the man with the withered hand. He needed help. Their hearts are so hard they fail to realize that even their own interpretation of the law allowed for pulling of wounded animals to safety. Their hearts are so hard that they're blind even to see that the Sabbath was designed by God for man's good. God's purpose was for rest and restoration for his people. God's purpose was not to bind his people up. It was to set them free like Rick was talking about. Their hearts have become so hardened that they respond with silent contempt. We won't even honor you with an answer. And they sit there. Immediately after Jesus healed the man, the Pharisees got up and you can see them storming out of the room, their robes flapping behind them and gathering the Herodians and going outside. And they begin to talk together and give counsel back and forth. The Herodians are like the political group in Israel. And now they're conspiring and giving evidence. We've got to get rid of him. We've got to destroy him. And the reality is a hardened heart at the end of the day will try and do everything it can to be rid and free of Jesus. Their hardened heart drove them all the way to the point where they wanted to destroy him. You know, as I sat there and I contemplated and thought about that, I began to ask myself, how many of us, how many times have I heard the word of God and refused to obey its call and its command into my life? Are we refusing to listen, refusing to heed? Beware, my brother and my sister. Listen, the longer we stubbornly refuse to hear the word of God, to obey its call in our lives, we are hardening ourselves like the hand and the tool. The hand just keeps resisting and the tool keeps rubbing back and forth and it's harder and harder and harder the skin gets and eventually can handle all sorts of pain and trouble. Your heart wasn't designed to do that. Your heart was designed to hear the word of God and respond and comply in obedience and in faith, in love to God. Perhaps it's an ungodly habit you are practicing. Maybe it's a habit of gossip or lying. Maybe it's a habit of critical speech and divisive speech. Maybe it's a habit of lust or even pornography. And God has promised you grace and strength to help if you will ask in the power of the Holy Spirit to strive to break that habit. Listen to the word of God. Listen to what God is saying. Don't harden your heart against it. Perhaps there's sin you've committed against another believer or another person and you need to confess it and set it right. Perhaps there's an ongoing besetting sin in your life. We all have them. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's discontentment. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's a judgmental spirit. Maybe it's even a sin of hypocrisy. 
God is not pleased with behavior that disregards his holiness. The Spirit of God is grieved and hindered in his influence in your life so long as that sin is allowed to remain. And every time the Word of God comes and the Spirit of God brings that Word into your life and applies it to your heart and you resist, the harden gets a little hardener. The hardening gets harder. The callous gets tougher, right? Listen to the Word of God. He, what the Spirit of God is putting in your heart. Don't harden your heart against the Word of God in your life. Maybe there's an ungodly relationship you're maintaining. God's Word and His Holy Spirit have impressed it on your heart. You need to end it. Heed the Word of God. Don't harden your heart against it. Maybe there's a godly discipline. You need to begin. Maybe God's been laying on your heart. There's something in your life that you need to start doing so that you can grow more as a Christian. Maybe the discipline of Bible reading and study. Maybe it's a joyful discipline of prayer. Maybe it's a discipline of giving your time and your money to his work. Maybe it's a discipline of witnessing to those outside the faith. Listen. Listen to the voice of the Spirit of God in the pages of Scripture. Don't harden your heart against it. How many times have we done that, eh? You read the Word of God and and the Word of God just cuts through. And it penetrates to the very inside of our hearts and says, you need to do this. You need to stop this. You need to get in control of this. I'm offering you my spirit and my power to help you do it. I will do it if you step out in faith and obey. But we resist. No, 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 no. It's too much. No, no, it's too hard. No, no, that's for somebody else. No, no, that's not really doesn't mean. I'm misapplying the text. We find all kinds of ways to get around it. And every time we push back and resist, we're hardening our hearts again and again. Maybe it's that you've never trusted in Christ to begin with. Maybe you've heard the gospel again and again and again. Maybe you know what it is, that the fact that God is holy and that you're a sinner. Maybe you know that you must repent of sin. Maybe you know you must trust God to keep his promises. Maybe you know because you've seen so much the life of joy and peace that's another believers around you and still you delay. Still you push back. Still your sin is more attractive to you than the God in all his glory. Listen. Listen very carefully. God's grace is unbounded and free in its extent. But God's grace is not not unlimited in its time. There will come a time when God will say, no more. In the Old Testament, one of the scenes out of the Old Testament, it always makes me chill and stop. Noah's ark's up on the hill. and All the animals have flooded into it over a period of time. Noah and his family have gone into the ark... And it's begun to rain. And the people outside are standing there looking up at the ark. And the rain is falling and falling and falling. And all of a sudden, all by itself, because the Bible says that God shut the door of the ark and closed it off. And all of a sudden, the people outside the ark, they've watched and they've heard the testimony of Noah. They've heard him preaching the gospel. They know what it's going to happen because he's told them over and over again. And now they're beginning to wonder because all of a sudden, for the first time in all of human history, rain is falling. And the possibility of that great big boat sitting on the ground is to, to float all of a sudden is there. And the hand closes the door and shuts Noah in and shuts everybody else out. The waters rise. And as one by one they disappear beneath the waves of God's judgment, there is no more hope. 
The day will come. If you're hearing the gospel, if you've never trusted Christ, you've never turned to him for forgiveness and repented of your sin, know for sure that his grace is still available, but there will come a day when God will say no more. Don't delay. Don't resist. Push back against God and say, no, not now. Don't harden your heart to the news of the gospel. The second thing I want you to see this morning, the first thing was to be aware of a hardened heart. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to see the kindness and the severity of God put together in a beautiful paradox, a beautiful juxtaposition. Refusal to believe brings the anger of God. Well, there Jesus is standing in the middle of the synagogue. He is looking all around the room. The the silence is so heavy on them. The silent contempt of the Pharisees has angered Jesus, and he is grieved. In the text, there are three things that we are necessary for us to see about Jesus. Number one, he is angry with the Pharisees. Number two, he is grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And number three, he expresses unbelievable kindness to this man. And I want us to see that. I want us to see the severity of God. God angered at stubborn unbelief. It's the only time in the Gospels, like I said before, that Jesus is described as angry. He's angry at those Pharisees. They have been given so much evidence of who Jesus is. They've heard with their own ears the words of Jesus. They've seen with their own eyes the proof of his deity. They've seen with their own eyes the rejoicing and the joy in the disciples. They've seen sinners following him, rejoicing in who he is. They had every bit of evidence necessary put before them again and again and again, and they have stubbornly resisted. They've seen the lives of sinners change to become followers. And more than that, they know the law. They know the prophets. They know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They knew all those promises about the Messiah. They could go back through and start to pick out and show even us. Things that we didn't know about Jesus. We don't know about Jesus from the Old Testament. They'd seen it all, and yet they refused to believe because God is passionate about his holiness and about his glory he must also burn with righteous anger at the sin of men God cannot tolerate such willful defiance of his words his work and his person Jesus is angry at their hardened hearts you know I can think I can imagine what some of your thoughts might be hey Why don't you talk more about the grace of God and the love of God and the nice things about God? They're so much more encouraging. Let's talk about those instead. They're more acceptable to us in our day. We don't need the angry God anymore. We've heard enough about the angry God. We're tired of hearing about the angry God. Well, let me explain to you like this. If you don't understand that God is more than mildly annoyed at sin, if you don't understand... Sorry, that God is, is furiously outraged at sin, and the grace of God is cheapened, the love of God is shallower, and the reality of God's holiness and his anger at sin, that's when we, sorry, when we experience his grace, it is that much more amazing. When we realize the depth of the darkness of the anger of God, think of it like this. The blinding sunshine of God's grace is that much greater after being inside the darkened tomb of his wrath. When we see the the grace of God, it's so much greater. Jesus, looking slowly around the room, burns with a righteous, holy indignation and anger at the hardness of their hearts. But notice the word right beside anger. You should have anger and then a comma, 
grieved. Jesus was not only angry at the hardness of their heart, he was also grieved at their hardness. His heart was broken. That's what it means. He literally was broken with sorrow and sadness for the people of God. Jesus' own heart was grieving. He was enraged by their stubborn belief and greatly saddened by You know the word rage or the anger there in uh, verse number... Um, Five, I think it is. The word is orge in the Greek. And you say, what? Orge, what does that mean? Well, who's heard the word orgy? Same root word. What does that mean? Orgy is an unrestrained frenzy. And so anger like that with that word means an unrestrained unleashing of his holy indignation and wrath. But here's the beautiful thing, and it just shows the Godhood of Jesus as he stands there. He doesn't unleash himself in anger and righteous indignation at those men. He stands there in absolute and total control. He is angry with them, and yet he is absolutely restrained and controlled. In the very same moment, at the same time, he is brokenhearted. He's grieving over their, their hardness. I believe these two words, side by side, we have the justice and the wrath of God together with the love of God. His heart broke. He knew them all. He knew every single one of them. He knew them intimately as his own creatures. He had created them. He had designed us all to experience the greatest joy of all in trusting Jesus and glorifying him and worshiping him. But instead, we stubbornly refuse to submit and believe. But the story, you notice, it doesn't end there. I want us also to see the heart soaring kindness of God. Jesus at last, at that long moment of looking around the room, the anger and the grief, he finally turns back to the man in the middle who's still standing there. In the grace of Jesus, he does not move closer to the man. He doesn't have to put out his hand to touch the man. He doesn't have to do anything. It's beautiful. You know what he does? He just speaks the words. And the only muscles that Jesus moves are his tongue and his lips to make the words stretch it out. I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to see the kindness and the beauty and the loveliness of the Lord Jesus as he stands there. The Pharisees were content to use this man to find grounds to accuse Jesus and be rid of him. The Pharisees cared nothing for this man. To them, he was just a pawn in the game to play it and get rid of it, but not Jesus. See the good shepherd caring for one of his sheep. The sheep is maimed. The sheep is deformed. He's hindered from enjoying all the privileges of Jewish life and worship. His paralyzed hand prevented him from attending the temple. And Jesus, in his kindness and his grace, just says, stretch it out. By the way, did you notice at the beginning of the whole series of stories is a paralyzed man. The word for the describe the withered hand of the man in this story, it can also be translated paralyzed. It's neat. It's like bookends. And Jesus turns towards this man just says, stretch it out. The good shepherd caring for his sheep. See also the suffering servant of Yahweh. The healing that Jesus provides is absolutely free of charge. All he has to do is stretch a few centimeters with his hand and make an effort, an action of faith, and he will know freedom again. His hand will be able to be used. But the healing that Jesus provides will come at great cost to him, for it's by his stripes that we are healed. See the grace and the kindness of God healing this man. 
I don't want you to walk out of here going, wow, those hardened Pharisees. I don't want you to remember all that. I want you to walk out of here thinking on and dwelling on the center point of the whole story, which is Christ himself. And I'm almost convinced that he's standing in the very dead center of that synagogue and every single eye is focused on him. And what I want us to do as we walk out of here is to have every eye focused on Jesus and Jesus alone. I want you to see the kindness of God, the grace of God, the love of God that just spoke those words. He could have avoided. Hey, you know what? Meet me back here in like 12 hours off the Sabbath and we'll keep these guys happy and we'll heal you. You know, you'll, you'll be fine. No. He didn't pause longer than what was necessary to make his point to Pharisees. He just said, stretch it out. The last thing I want you to see this morning, thirdly, is this. The faith that brings freedom. With a few words, Jesus calls this man to stretch out his hand. The command given imparted the power to him to obey. But still he had to make a choice. He heard the call of Jesus. He could stand still, disobedient, but conforming to the legalistic restriction of the Pharisees. He could refuse to believe Jesus as the Pharisees had. He could refuse to obey Jesus as they had, and he would remain maimed and deformed. He could do that. And now, that moment he dreaded, every single eye in the room lands on the man with the withered hand. His faith will not be a silent, private act. His faith will be in a few seconds for everybody to see. In a few centimeters of stretching, in a few seconds of obedient action, will be a public declaration. He will be the only one in that room that will declare by his actions that it is lawful, it is permitted to do good, to heal, to save on the Sabbath. And you know the story. His faith is exercised, his hand is stretched out. He is set free from both the Pharisees and his withered paralyzed hand. Whatever God is calling you to do, listen, whatever God is calling you to do, the faith you must exercise will be costly. It's true. Noah built an ark. He suffered the ridicule and abuse of all of his neighbors while he spent years building that ark. Abraham turned around and walked out of Ur of the Chaldees, and no doubt they came after him. Where are you going, Abraham? I'm following the Lord. Where? Not sure, going and following the Lord. It's a cost to pay. And the reality is for all of us, the faith that we need to exercise in Jesus Christ is going to cost us something. And this man in front of everybody in the room reached out and pushed his hand out and he felt his hand come to life. The blood began to flow through it. And all of a sudden, he had everything back. You realize the freedom he had all of a sudden? All those times that his hand was deformed and withered, he could go up to the temple and he could stand outside the gates and wash as person after person goes in. He was not free to go inside. Now he could go in and enjoy all the beauty and all the joy of worshiping his God. He had been set free. His deformity had been fixed. And you know what it is for us? We come to Christ. We trust him for our salvation and the deformity of our hearts, the sin that cuts us off from God is restored. Our hearts are made new. We're new creatures in Christ. We have life again. His faith set him free. What's the message for us, for KC Bible Church for today? It's simply this. Don't harden your hearts, but believe. In grace, God taught us his word. Don't harden your heart against it but believe. In grace, God forgives us of sin. If you're sitting here this morning and there's something between you and God, even if you're a believer in Christ, I urge you, I plead with you with all my heart, set it right. 
If there's something between you and somebody else in this room and it hasn't been set right, go to them and put it right. If there's someone outside this room that needs to be confessed, sin needs to be confessed to and sought forgiveness for, go and do it. The longer you resist, the longer you harden your heart against it, the more your spiritual growth is stunted and retarded and deformed. It's possible for you to spend your entire life going to church and remaining a spiritual baby because you will not yield in forgiveness. Sorry, yield in obedience and obtain forgiveness from God. In grace, God forgives us, us of our sin. Don't harden our hearts. Believe that God forgives. Cry out to God for forgiveness of sin. Thirdly, or fourthly, sorry. No. Thirdly, God fellowships with repentant sinners. Don't harden your heart. But believe, God desires your fellowship. Did you know that? Jesus was willing to take those Pharisees. If they would leave everything behind and follow him, he would have shoved himself over on the couch and said, come down here, come recline with me and join me at the table. They could have had everything those sinners had if they would just realize their own sinful condition and leave it behind and follow Jesus. It was that simple, but again, they turned away. God desires your fellowship. And fourthly, the last one, in grace, God rejoices with us, his followers. Did you know that? No matter how grumpy you are this morning, miserable because it's cold and wet and rainy, God rejoices in the fact that we are here together enjoying him and rejoicing in him. God rejoices in his people. This is a little bit off topic. You know that in the Zechariah thing, it says that God sings a love song over his people. Can you imagine the perfect being, unlike any other being, with a perfect voice and a perfect, limitless love, turning towards you and singing a song of love? I want you to walk out of here thinking about the dark, the anger of God. That's important. But I want you to see the beauty and the love and the kindness and the grace of Jesus. I want you to turn towards God and seek the forgiveness and have that hard, callous skin peeled off and be soft underneath and willing to hear whatever he has to say to you. In grace, God rejoices with his followers. Don't harden your heart, but believe that God rejoices in us. Let's rejoice in Jesus, our lovely Savior. Let's rejoice with a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory, as Peter says. We're going to sing one more song. I think it's Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his lovely face. Isn't it great? Would you, let's just stand, we'll pray together, then we're going to sing a song. Loving Father, this morning we come before you and we give you thanks. And Father, it is our delight to turn and to see the one in the very center of the room. To see the one around whom our hearts are focused. To see the one through the eyes of faith who loved us even to the point of death. Father, we rejoice this morning in Christ our Savior. Father, it's our desire to see him. Father, I plead with you this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that if somebody is standing here or sitting here this morning and has hardened themselves against you, I plead with you, O God, 
that by the power of your spirit, you would turn their hearts back to you again. Father, whatever sin we're harboring and treasuring up, that's blinding our eyes to the beauty and the glory and the loveliness of Jesus, Father, help us to put it aside, put it away, seek forgiveness, and walk again with you. Father, we thank you and we rejoice in our Savior. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved wretches like us. Father, we thank you again for our Savior, and we do so in his own precious name. Amen.